We begin a new section tonight in our series entitled Defending Your Faith, and I'm excited about it because it affords us the opportunity to talk about some of the world's great religions. This is the third major section of our series, having completed section one, which you know dealt with as Christians what we believe. We spent eight messages defining what we believe as Christians, and then we moved on to section two in this series, and that was, of course, defending your faith against the attacks of others, most notably the cults. And we spent eight messages there as well, talking about those uh, very, very important items and how we would defend our faith against those who would attack us. And tonight's message and subsequent section will attempt to deal with the various non-Christian religions of the world. And we will begin to explore these different religions. And tonight we are going to focus, uh, as we are the next couple of times, on what we would term the great monotheistic religions of the world. That is, those who suppose that, like Christianity, there is only one God who is the creator and ruler of the world. Now, there are three great monotheistic religions, three major religions in the world that affirm monotheism, namely Judaism, of which, of course, Jews are known, Christianity, of course, where Christians reside, and Islam, where Muslims adhere. And some would, of course, throw in uh, a very, very obscure religion called Zoroastrianism. And if you've never heard of Zoroastrianism, uh, it's not really a big problem uh, for you to not know of that because it's a very, very small religion in comparison with the three monoliths known as Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, but at least for our time and our purposes, we're going to occupy ourselves with understanding a little bit about these particular religions of our world that affirm the one God. And of course you might say, why? Why would we want to do that? Well, in terms of our desire to defend our faith and not only to defend what we believe, but of course we live and we exist in and around those who are Muslims. We move and exist and live around those who are Jews. And we need to know and understand what they believe so that we might be able to witness to them effectively and that we might be able to live for the cause of Christ to those people. Since we have, of course, covered Christianity in great detail. I'm not going to discuss those things. We've already gone through them uh, in quite a good bit of detail. And so I'm going to focus uh, tonight and then next time on the other two great religions, Judaism tonight and then Islam for next time. And I want to cover it tonight in really two Roman numeral outline points. Outline point number one What is the origin of Judaism? How and where did it begin? And then secondly, 
What is present-day Judaism? How are we to understand it as it has unfolded before our very eyes? Okay? So let's talk first of all, in outline point number one, the origins of Judaism. And I think it would be well for us right at the outset to define what we mean by Judaism or at least to allow some of them to define what they mean by their religion of Judaism. And I think a definition of Judaism would be appropriate right here at the outset. And one of the resources that I found helpful in my study was by a man by the name of Winfred Corduan, who is a professor of philosophy and religion at Taylor University in Indiana. And he's authored a very helpful book called Neighboring Faiths. And he defines Judaism this way. Very, very helpful. He says, quote, Judaism is a religion based on relationships. God's relationship with the human person, a person's relationship with God, people's individual relationships with each other, and the chosen people's relationship with other nations. All these relationships are based on rules and traditions that are said to have originated with God. Judaism does not revolve around a set of doctrines or a plan of salvation. Instead, it is a prescription for living life. The crucial question in Judaism is, what do you practice? Or what are you doing with your life, not what do you believe? Different branches of contemporary Judaism provide somewhat differing styles of answers. The common denominator is the need to make a difference in the world through a life of righteousness, end quote. In other words, what he's attempting to say there by defining Judaism is that Judaism as over against Christianity is not necessarily a set of beliefs. It's not necessarily a belief system, a set of doctrines to be adhered to. Now that is not to say that they don't have doctrines. It is not to say that they don't have core beliefs. But for Judaism, it's really more a matter of living a life that is pleasing to God, more a life of righteousness, a life of relationships in which we are pleasing to God and to each other. Nicholas DeLange writes about Judaism in a very helpful book called Judaism, and he says this, The character of Judaism is to be sought not in ideas or beliefs, but in history. This is not to say that Judaism has no ideas or beliefs which would be patently untrue, but rather it is the historical experience which is primary, and the ideas and beliefs in some sense flow from that experience. Another particular definition of Judaism goes like this from James Lewis and William Travis in their book Religious Traditions of the World. This call to worship in which they're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 6 is known as the Shema. And if you were with us several Sundays ago, I believe Pastor Jeff Kratz dealt with Deuteronomy 6, at least to some degree, if I remember rightly. And so they're talking about that and they say this particular form or call to worship, the Shema, is from the first word of verse 4, which is the word Hebrew word Shema, which means to hear. They say, the first sentence of these verses is the Shema proper, 
But the whole six verses refer to the foundational truth conveyed by verse 4. Sabbath worship in the synagogue begins with the Shema proclaimed, and religious Jews recite it three times a day. And here's how they would define it. The heart of the Shema is the teaching that God is one, that Israel's God, Yahweh, is supreme God of the universe. Hence the command elsewhere, you shall have no other gods before me. Since God is the sole God, then the obligations that follow the proclamation are inevitable. Love God with your whole being. Remind yourself in every facet of life just who God is. In other words, what they would want to say is that if you were to define Judaism at all, it is to define it by loving God with all of your heart, by trying to access that God by living righteously. Now, of course, everything that I've said up to this point is exactly what we would want to affirm, right? And, of course, that's why we would have such a kinship with Judaism. That's why Christianity itself has come out of Judaism. That's why when we read in our Old Testament, we affirm so much of what Judaism affirms. And that's why when we read in our New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that which Judaism itself promotes, at least from our perspective. And so there's much within Judaism for us to commend. There's much for us to say, Amen. That's the way to live, to live to the glory of God, to serve Yahweh, to do all that we can to be obedient to Him, to have the kind of character that reflects His character. And when Judaism reflects this kind of definition, we would say, yes, that's the kind of definition that we should have toward Yahweh as well. Now, with regard to some of the terms that Judaism promotes and maybe even what Judaism is itself, let me give a few of those to you because in order for us to understand exactly what Jews mean by some of the terms that they use, it'll be helpful for us to understand how and why they use them. For instance, when the term Israel itself is used, say for instance in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 through 9, the great Shema, what does it mean? What does the term Israel itself really mean? Well, it is referring specifically to the descendants of the twelve sons of Jacob, to whom God Himself gave the name Israel. In other words, when Jacob was renamed, God was giving a very, very significant term. And that particular term would refer specifically, or at least originally, to those twelve sons of Jacob, or the twelve tribes, the tribes that they would become. Now, in our particular language, Israel would not necessarily mean what it originally meant. It has taken on a different meaning. It was then related to those people who were the first Israelites. But for us, when we give the word or speak the word Israel, we're particularly concerned about both the people, the Israelites, but also the place in which they dwell, the land of Israel. 
or even those who would not be living right now physically in the land of Israel, they would still be known in some sense as Israelites. We don't necessarily use that term uh, to speak of them that much today. We would tend to use the term Jews or the Jewish people. But it would be appropriate to refer to all the people who are originally the descendants of Jacob as Israelites. The word Jew itself, by the way, comes from the word Judah, one of the original 12 tribes. I don't know if you knew that, but that's exactly where the word itself has its origin. In 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 6, it's actually a word that refers to the southern kingdom, Judah, Jew. It was a reference, and I think that's the first time where that particular phrase was used in our Bible to refer to a specific group of people. You remember when the kingdom was split up between northern and southern, and the people down south, according to 2 Kings 16, were known as Jews or those descending from Judah. It, of course, for us, would be referring to anyone who comes from the Jewish ancestry, even if they're not a practicing Jew. Isn't that amazing how people who would, who would be termed in our own parlance secular Jews or non-religious Jews, they would still refer to themselves as Jews, right? Because they are Jewish by birth or they're Jewish by race. Now, we would not say about ourselves that we've been Christians from birth, right? Because we become Christians because Christ comes into our life. We're not born into Christianity. But when you speak of someone who is Jewish, you speak of someone who is both Jewish by birth and someone who, if they are a completed Jew, someone who's come to Messiah someone who's repented of their sins, they placed their faith in Christ, that they are also truly Jewish by way of their spiritual ancestry. Now, of course, they would say that's a mockery because we don't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And if they were to say of themselves, I'm not a secular Jew, but I am one who practices all of the religion of Judaism, they would think of themselves as spiritually Jewish and not just physically Jewish. Now, We know that in the New Testament, of course, that the terms Jew, the term Israel, are essentially used interchangeably. There's not really a distinction between an Israelite and a Jew. In fact, there's really not even a difference between the terms Jew, Israelite, and Hebrew, even though in much of the case in our language today, when we talk about Hebrew, we're more apt to refer to that as a language rather than a people. They are Jewish and therefore they speak the Hebrew language. But essentially, when we look in our Bibles and we see the book of Hebrews or the letter written to the Hebrews, we understand that to be a letter written to the Jewish people. It's it's important for us to understand some of these things and not to make mistakes sometimes when we talk to them and give terminology that they might themselves object to. But essentially, for us as Christians, we're talking about the same group of people, whether we use the term Jew, Israelite, or Hebrew. It's also interesting to me that even though the Jews came from the tribes of Jacob, 
that the common understanding, at least among Christians and even among many of the Jews, is that the father of the Jews is whom? Abraham. Abraham. In fact, you can go all the way back to Genesis 12, and maybe it would be well for us to do that. Why don't you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll look at this man, Abram, or Abraham, and notice the key part he plays in the origin of Judaism. In Genesis chapter 12, we see that there was a man named Abram. And he was called by God to do something. And in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you, your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him, one of his relatives. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was there, was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. What's going on here is this. Abram was originally a part of a land that was occupied by the Chaldeans or Chaldees. And he was from Ur of the Chaldees and he was called by God to leave that area. And we know from the very earliest times, and this is probably somewhere around 2100 B.C. In other words, 2100 years before Christ. So this is the time of what we will know popularly as the time of the patriarchs. And Abram is that first. We don't know that he's first in time, but he is certainly first in terms of God calling this man out for something very, very special. And what God says is that I want you to go and I want you to come to a different place. And one of the things that's implicit here in this text is that Abram is a worshiper of the one God. You know, even back at this, this time, even Canaanite worship itself was a multiplicity of gods. And yet Abram was a servant of the one God. And that's, of course, why Judaism is supposed to be seen in its classic definition as a monotheistic religion. It is the service uh, and the belief in one God. And this is Abram, that patriarch. And do you notice the covenant that God made with Abram? He says, when you go forth 
from your relatives. In other words, away from your father's house. You're going alone, Abram. You're going to a land in which I will show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You shall be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a great, great covenant for God to make. It shows the greatness of God. It shows the sovereignty of God. And it is to be bestowed on a very unique person, Abram himself. We know, of course, that there is a, an inevitable and indisputable link between Judaism and Christianity. Because all the way over in Romans chapter 4, we have the Apostle Paul talking about this man Abraham. And notice what he says. He links Abraham to who we are as Christians. This is why it's important for you to know your Old Testament and for you to know who Abraham is. In chapter 4, Paul says this, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham, and then notice what Paul calls him, our forefather according to the flesh. And I don't believe that Paul is simply saying there, our forefather, in the sense that it's only Jews Paul himself, of course, was a Jew. But he's not only speaking about those who are Jewish by race. He's talking about those who are linked with Abraham because they too have placed their faith in God. And that's, of course, either a Jew or a Gentile. We know that from Romans 9, 10, and 11. He says in verse 2, "...for if Abraham was justified by works..." He has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited to him as righteousness. Not to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, if you work for it, you're due what you work for. But since you can't work for your salvation, it is not something that is due you. It is a gift of God's grace. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. And you notice in verse 9 it says, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. God called him out. He responded to that. He did what God called him to do. He believed God. He believed in God. And he therefore becomes the prototype, the progenitor, not only of all of the nations of the earth by way of faith, but especially the Jews by way of their race, by way of their lineage. And then they became God's chosen people in this sense, that they were to bring the oracles of God. They were to bring the Word of God. They were to bring the law of God to all of the nations. Abraham being the father. And that's exactly what happened. You can go all the way over to what Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 3. And he says essentially the same thing about Abraham. This is the origin of Judaism, beloved, and this is why it is so notably linked to Christianity. Abraham is spoken of in this very chapter, Galatians chapter 3. Notice what it says in verse 6. 
Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Verse 14, In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, God granted a promise. And that promise was all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. He was going to promise that there would, there would be a nation, and it would be a nation of both Jews and Gentiles, not just those who would be by race true Jews, but also those Gentiles who would, even though they're not physically Jews, would be the true Jews spiritually speaking because they would believe in Jesus Christ. So you have a very clear link between Judaism and Christianity. Now, of course, someone might immediately say, well, then why the big divide between Judaism and Christianity today? Well, the answer to that, of course is that there are those who Jewish by race and Jewish by spirituality who reject Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus was the true Messiah. He was not the true Jew who was going to come and relieve the Jews of their oppressive bondage. They rejected Him as the true Jew, the true Messiah who was to come. And so they're still looking for the first coming of Christ. And they reject Christianity out of hand. They reject the New Testament because they say, you are taking our religion in a way that it was never intended to go. You've appointed a man yourself, Jesus of Nazareth, and he is not the true Messiah. And so you have a false Messiah that you're serving. And they can become quite animated about that, can't they? You remember several months ago now when the director of Chosen People Ministries came and he shared with us when he went home to tell his Jewish parents that he had believed in Yeshua. And what did they do? They kicked him out. They told him, you're not welcome here. They became quite angry because he was saying in essence, not only by His coming to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, He was also saying about them, you're lost. You have not been bended the knee to Jesus Christ and therefore you yourselves are not in relationship to God as God prescribes through Christ. And those are very, very hard words for any Jewish person to hear, let alone affirm. And so therefore they reject that. They would agree up to the level of what we would say about Abraham, what we would say about he being the father of the faith, about his being blessed by God, about God uh, proclaiming a covenant through Abraham. They would agree with my words that Abraham is the father of the faith, he's the father of the faithful. And yet they would say that all of those things being true You have ridden on the back of Judaism, but you've taken it in a place that God never intended for it to go. That's a a dilemma. 
It's a dilemma not only for our evangelism, but it's a dilemma sometimes for those Jews because so many of them can see the link in our New Testament with some of those Old Testament themes. And some of them would say, yes, it does make a lot of sense. It does make a lot of sense what you say about Jesus. And if He, Jesus, was really the true Messiah, then the New Testament does make sense in so many ways. But because I'm Jewish, I must reject it. I was talking with Patty Lou Dillahay just before the service, and she was telling me about talking with one of her Jewish friends. And she was talking to this person about Jesus And the person was denying the reality of that and affirming her Jewishness. And Patty Lou said, but what is your Jewishness? What is it? What does it mean to be a Jew? And she had no answer. And for them, it's not always that they reject Jesus Christ out of hand, although they do. It's not their primary thing. It's their connection with Judaism itself. And that's so true about so many other religions of the world. It's so difficult for those people to convert to Christianity because they would say about themselves, how can I convert to Christianity when I'm a Buddhist, when I'm Hindu, when I'm fill-in-the-blank? And often for them, it's family concerns, it's history It's what they've always believed. And to turn their back on those things and to say that those, in fact, may have been a damning religion, they've kept them from a right relationship with God, that's a very, very difficult thing to overcome. And maybe for the Jews, it's the most difficult to overcome. Nonetheless, there's an opportunity, folks, for us to witness to those Jews It's the opportunity to express the commonality of who Abraham is. It's the opportunity to say, we know who Abraham is and we affirm who you claim him to be. We affirm that. He's the father of the faith. The Apostle Paul himself affirms such a thing in Romans chapter 4. Paul himself speaks glowingly of Abraham as the father of the faith, as one who is a son of Abraham. In Galatians 3, we affirm those things. That's a point of evangelistic commonality that we can make with some of our Jewish friends. There's another person that we could make a commonality with some of our Jewish friends, and that's with Moses. Moses is the great lawgiver, is he not? No one in Christianity denies that Moses was the one who was given the law of God, the Decalogue, on those tablets. And we affirm such a thing. We affirm the greatness of Moses. We affirm His character. We affirm what He was about in serving Yahweh. You see, as much as you can affirm from your Old Testaments will be a great point of commonality with the Jews. It is true, of course, that they would have elements of their theology about both Abraham and Moses that we would not be able to affirm. But as much as we can, we ought to try to affirm those things. It is true that many of the Jews today would look at the Mosaic legislation, all of the law of the Old Testament, and they would say, for instance, that there are approximately 613 of those laws, 365 negative and 248 positive. 
And of course, there are uh, some points of great debate that we would have about whether or not that constitutes everything that a person is supposed to obey from God. But on those points where we can show commonality, we ought to. And on those points of debate, then we don't compromise our Christian truth. We continue to proclaim what we believe. For instance, the Jews believe commonly when you try to break up all of these various categories of law that were given in the Old Testament, they usually break them down into three categories. For instance, they have what they call the Book of the Covenant, which runs all the way from Exodus chapter 20, verse 22, to chapter 23, verse 33, which gives the details about how the Jews were to obey their part of the covenant. Well, if we can affirm that, yes, that's true, that was a part of God's covenant with His chosen people, we ought to affirm that. They also have another aspect of the law called the priestly code, in which the Levitical priesthood from Exodus 25 to Numbers 10 gave instructions on how the Levitical priesthood was to conduct their, their public worship. And there, without saying that that's what we need to do today, because most of the Jews would say uh, among themselves that because the temple's not here, uh, there's no form of worship that they can express in that way, we ought to be able to say, yes, that's the way it used to be, just like them. They also affirm and affirm what is called the Deuteronomic Code from Deuteronomy chapter 1 all the way to chapter 30 in which it's outlined uh, how the Jews were to conduct themselves as they entered the promised land of Canaan. And we can say, yes, there were so many things that we could affirm uh, transculturally. Yes, we can say all of these things and we can develop that commonality and we should if we're endeavoring to witness to them. Now, of course, there are differences, and there are major differences, not just with the person of Christ, but there are major differences in terms of the law itself. For instance, did you know that the Jews historically have affirmed what they call the Torah? How many of you know what the Torah is? Normally, the Torah in our language would be the first five books, right, of the Old Testament. They, however, some of them at least, have a view that the Torah constitutes all of the Old Testament, would be sort of our form of the Christian Old Testament. In fact, I brought tonight uh, a Bible that has both the Hebrew text and the Greek text in it, and you'd be interested to know that they affirm every book of our Christian Old Testament. Now, it's in its different uh, order uh, it's not in the same order that we have it. In fact, if you were to look at the back of the Hebrew Bible, you would find that the last book is not Malachi, but First and Second Chronicles. And you shouldn't let that throw you off. They're all there. They're just not always in the order that we think it would be in. I was talking with Dr. Zimmick tonight, and he said, yes, and when you look at the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's even more out of order, and there are even parts of the different sections of our Bible that are in different places. There are even different verses from Jeremiah sort of uh, cast in different places from our own Bible, from our own English translation. And yet, the Torah is very, very sacred to the Jews. But here's an essential difference. They would say that among the authoritative aspects of God's relationship to us is not only the Torah, but the Talmud. The Talmud. And through the years, the Talmud has also 
added to it the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a set of Jewish commentaries that's an attempt to interpret the law. And what Judaism has done, almost from its very inception, post our experience of what we read in our Bibles, is an attempt to take the law of God, those 613 commands, and tries to interpret those, and they have ultimately, through oral and written communication, codified those things into the Talmud and the Mishnah, and what they've done now is they've virtually put those two books on a par with the Torah. If you would talk to a Jewish person today, and if you were to ask them, do you believe that the Torah is an authoritative document from God Himself? They would say, absolutely. It is inspired by God, and it is authoritative. If you were to ask them, well, tell me then, does your religion believe that there are any other sacred books in which you are to adhere? And they would say, yes, the Talmud and the Mishnah. Sometimes being separated, sometimes together. And they would say that that is just as authoritative. Now, there would be some brands, some strands of Judaism that wouldn't be as dogmatic as that. But virtually, because of tradition, they have taken those documents and put them on a par with Scripture. It, frankly, would not be a lot unlike what the Mormons have done with those books in their authoritative documents like the Pearl of Great Price, the Book of Mormon, Doctrines and Covenants, they would put those, and in fact, Mormon Bibles have those three included in the Old and New Testaments. Well, if you were to go to a bookstore, any bookstore really, and you were to say, I want to pick up the Mishnah, I want to pick up the Talmud. By the way, those are huge documents. Uh, the Talmud itself is, uh, in English translation, something like 16 or 17 volumes you say, well, what, what is in those documents that appears to be so authoritative for Jews? Here's what it is. Guess what you would do if you were a rabbi and you were trying to figure out how to obey 613 commands? You'd be saying to yourself, well, what does this mean? And how am I to obey this? And what happens if this contingency comes and I'm not able to obey this in this way? And what happened was through the history of Judaism... Those rabbis codified, wrote down, debated all of the various applications of the law, which is what the Mishnah is. And so those things became so important because of the respect that they had for the rabbis that those things became the very authority sources, just like the Torah. So it's not just the law, but it's the interpretation and the application of the law. And so therefore all those things are incredibly important to a true Jew. That's what they believe. That's what they say. And, as far as I'm concerned, they have taken the authoritative Torah, which we would affirm, and they've taken it way beyond not only what its original intent was, but they've added to that those things which God Himself never intended to be a part of inspired Scripture and was certainly not to be considered authoritative. That's what they affirm. That's what they believe. Now, this is going to be real simple, real easy, and it's going to be in a few minutes. I'm going to give you present-day Judaism, and I'm going to give it to you in a way that's very easy to understand. There are three groups, three groups of Judaism. The first is what we could call Orthodox Judaism. You might say, what is Orthodox Judaism? All right, 
Orthodox Judaism is this, sometimes seen in a form that I've actually experienced when I've been in Israel, in a small group called the Hasidic Jews. You ever heard of them? Have you ever seen them? You ever looked at them and see what they wear and how they dress? It seems odd to us, but they believe they have a biblical basis for wearing the things that they wear. You see the little curls on their sideburns because in the book of Leviticus it says don't cut that part, and so that part grows long. They wear a cap or a hat. Uh, they wear robes. They wear uh, those those elements that that come down off of the robe. Uh, they have those elements that they wrap around a piece of leather because it has some of the Word of God inside on their wrist. Sometimes they even wear it on their forehead. Sometimes uh, they even, as do most Jews, uh, put the Shema on their door, right? Because three times a day you're supposed to pray, and oftentimes when they go into a room, in fact, they probably do it every single time, before they go into the room, they touch the Shema, they touch uh, that uh, that element of the Word of God that's written down inside that little box, and they touch it, and then they kiss their fingers because of the preciousness of the Word of God in their minds. Orthodox Jews are what we would consider the most regimented, maybe not the word legalistic, but the most regimented Jews there are. They are very fastidious about keeping the law. Now, originally... It wasn't necessarily that way. Hasidic Judaism itself had a founder. His name was Baal Shem Tov. And he was reacting in many ways against some of these things in terms of the present dress and the lifestyle of his day. But tragically, those who took his particular brand of Judaism took it right to the place where he was not comfortable after his death. And in, even in the 18th century, they took on forms uh, that probably would make him uh, very, very upset today, but that's what they did. And they experienced tremendous persecution, did Orthodox Jews, especially during the time of the Nazi Holocaust. And in fact, they were the ones who, who were most intensely persecuted. And because of that, many of them had to migrate either to America or even to Israel itself, even though obviously it had not yet become a state by the end of the Second World War. These Orthodox Jews then represent for us what we would consider the most regimented I don't want to say the most conservative. I don't want to say the most legalistic or something like that or the most fundamentalistic. Sometimes you'll be reading an article in a paper or you'll be watching a television news broadcast and they will derisively mention the Orthodox Jews, the Hasidic Jews. That's a sect of Orthodox Judaism. And they'll say that they are ultra-Orthodox. They are ultra-fundamentalistic. Well... That's really an unfortunate use of terms because how can you be ultra-Orthodox if you're Orthodox? How can you be ultra-fundamental if you're fundamental? If you're fundamental, you're fundamental. If you're Orthodox, you are Orthodox. And so for them, they have been derisively treated through the years because they are different. And there, of course, are other Orthodox Jews that are not ascetic Jews, but that's the brand that would be the most regimented, the most rigid. Secondly, the second group of Judaism that is extant today are what we would call Reformed Judaism, Reform Judaism. Not E-D, but just R-E-F-O-R-M, Reform Judaism. 
They arose in the 18th century. Their founder was Moses Mendelssohn. He was recognized as the pioneer of this movement. And what they did was they began to break away culturally from the Judaism of their own day, and they began to be very much a part of the culture that they were around. And in fact, so influenced were they by the culture that by the time it migrated to France, Germany, uh, the United States, countries like that, it became liberal in its orientation. And in fact, even today, if you were to try to understand Judaism in its reform connotation, it is nothing like what we say when we call ourselves reformed Christians. We have a completely different definition. And what you have to do is when you listen to the television or when you read something or when you talk with someone and they talk about being reformed Judaism, you have to understand that it's not anything like the Reformation. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's talking about reforming themselves in the midst of their culture to become like their culture, to reach out to their culture. But did you understand that Reformed Judaism, very much unlike Orthodox, it's poles apart from that. Orthodox Judaism would be way over here, and Reformed Judaism would be way over here. In our language, we might say it like this. Orthodox Judaism is to the far right, especially of the Hasidic kind, and Reformed Judaism is to the far left. In fact, there are so many parallels of Reformed Judaism and Protestant liberalism that sometimes you can't tell them apart from each other. If you were to go to a Reformed, a Reformed temple and you were to watch what they do, you were to see what they involve themselves in, they're involved in the political scene, they're involved in uh, social causes, uh, they might even be very, very supportive of the homosexual movement. They would be very supportive of, uh, of societal uh, uh, prevention of AIDS. Uh, they are very much in support of the liberalization of the women's movement. Uh, they would say women don't need to be in the home anymore. That's a bygone day. That's a Victorian prudish era. We need to move away from that. We need to be a part of the culture in which we find ourselves. That really is nothing more than the flip side of what we would say is Protestant liberalism. That's Reform Judaism. By the way, with regard to the Orthodox, there are over a million Orthodox Jews living in the world today. And Reform Jews, about a million three hundred thousand. You know, there's only apparently about, about five million of those Jews who would say they have some form of the pursuit of God as a religious Jew. Probably about 20% of the Jews living today would call themselves completely secularized. They have no religious orientation. The vast majority of them, however, would say, I'm very religious, and they would fall within the category of Orthodox Judaism, Reform Judaism, or, number three in our category, Conservative Judaism. Conservative Judaism. That's the third group living in our world today. And they would be somewhat of a hybrid, somewhere in the middle between Orthodox Jews on the far right and Reformed Jews on the far left. These conservative Jews would be somewhere in the middle. This would be some of your natural, normal, down-the-street Jewish synagogue or temple 
That's what you would see by and large if you were to drive by. It would probably be a conservative Jewish congregation. Now, conservative, again, is not necessarily what we mean by that term. It's something different. And basically, it's a hybrid. A person could be an Orthodox Jew and not have an Orthodox temple to worship in, and so he might go to a conservative Jewish temple. A person who might even be uh, a Reformed Jew who would not necessarily have maybe all of the agreements, but if he did not have uh, a temple to worship in, he might also show up at a conservative uh, uh, conservative temple or synagogue. And so the conservative Judaism in the world today is the most popular, and there are about 2 million conservative Jews who are living in the world today. Now, having said all of that, You ask the question, as I do, boy, when you try to understand this and when you try to look at this movement, how do you witness to people like this? How do you live your Christian life in light of the fact that there are people who are very antagonistic toward you as a believer? Well, as we close, I want to give you a couple of points that I think are very, very helpful. Number one, number one, have the attitude the Apostle Paul had toward the Jews as he speaks of it in Romans chapter 9. You don't have to turn there, but I just want to show you the flavor of what Paul believed about his ministry to these fellow Jewish people like himself. He said, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Why, Paul? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promise the promises who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. In other words, Paul is saying, I have this unceasing grief in my heart that I know they're God's chosen people. They have the covenants. They have the promises. They have the law given to them. They, they have the adoption as sons waiting for them. And yet they're separated from Christ unceasing grief in my heart. In fact, his grief is so incredibly passionate that he says in Romans 10, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. goes on to say in this chapter and Chapter 9, you know, if I had the opportunity to give up my own salvation, I would for my countrymen. That's an incredible statement. That's an incredible love. Now you know why. Not just when people come to the Bible church, but when you read books and see people who are so zealous toward Jewish evangelism, why they're so motivated. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that people who are doing Jewish evangelism seem to be so much more motivated than the rest of us? Because they have that same kind of passion like Paul. That's number one. Have the same attitude like Paul had. Number two, pray for the Jews. 
pray for the Jews as God's chosen people. That God would take the spiritual blinders off their eyes. Pray the kind of prayer that's prayed in Psalm 125 at the end of verse 5. Peace be upon Israel. Peace be upon Israel. Thirdly, and I just, just in about 45 minutes I think it's been, just just scratched the surface of what Judaism is all about. I mean, I gave you in about five minutes of the three strands of present-day Judaism. Of those who are conservative, those who are reformed, those who are orthodox. But that's just scratching the surface. We ought to study a lot more about this group. They are from our spiritual lineage. How did they come to be in those three strands? Why do they think the way they think? Why do they pray the way they pray? Why do they teach the way they teach? What's their history? Uh, what, what, what's their future? Where are they going? Know about Judaism, both past and present. Know its various strands. Fourthly, because of the commonalities, and I think I mentioned this a moment ago, because of the commonalities of the two religions, establish the things with your Jewish friends that you have in common and then work from there. Try to use those things as a platform for further discussion with them. Some of them may completely turn you, tune you out. Some of them may completely keep you at arm's length if you begin to witness to them in this way. But in God's great economy and His providence, He may very well give you a relationship with a Jewish person in which at that very point where others might turn you away, this person might say, tell me more. Tell me more. And then fifthly and lastly, don't be afraid to both live out and proclaim Christ to your Jewish friends and neighbors. Don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid to proclaim Christ. Don't be afraid to talk about Jesus. Proclaim Christ. Live a holy life. Live a righteous life. And then see what God would do. See what God would do. I... Remember at the end of that discussion in which that chosen people director who has such a wonderful ministry there in New York said that he's had some level of a return of relationship with his parents. And I know that some of them have been so tragically ostracized but I also have heard reports about some of them who maybe after an initial time of being ostracized by their family, that little by little, by not compromising the gospel and by proclaiming Christ and by living a righteous life, they've had that entree back. They've had that platform back to be able to share with their parents that they're not kooks, that they're not crazy, that they're not in a cult. And they've had the opportunity even to see their parents come to Christ. I remember Mitch Glazer. This is the man I was talking about with chosen people. One of the last things he said to me when I took him to the airport, he said, continue to pray for my parents. Continue to pray for my parents. I pray for my parents every day. Continue to pray for those in our ministry who need to come to know Christ. Those people that we're witnessing to or walking down those streets of New York. I told Tim Sin recently that I would love it if our youth had the opportunity to go up to a place and be supervised by Mitch Glazer and they were able to witness to Jews on the streets of New York. What, what a great opportunity. 
What a life-changing opportunity that would be. I've been involved with that before. When I was with Grace Community Church, uh, someone came to me and they said, uh, there's going to be a celebration of the Statue of Liberty. You remember when it was the anniversary? I think it was maybe the, was it the 100th or 150th anniversary of the, of the Statue of Liberty? And they said, would you like to write the tracks that we're going to send out to all of the, the kids who go on the streets of New York when that Statue of Liberty celebration is going to be? And would you like to write a track on light and write a track on liberty for them? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe the opportunity I had before me. I worked hard and I wrote these tracks and they ultimately, Grace, to you, put them in as a booklet. And I think they printed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them. And it was all coordinated by a Bible church there, Manhattan Bible Church. And they had thousands of young people who took those tracks and handed those out to people, many of them Jews. And I thought to myself, you know, I wasn't able to go physically, but I was there. I was there. I don't know, but, but what eternity might produce in terms of one person reading one of those tracks and coming to faith in Christ. Well, what an opportunity. Don't be intimidated by those hard people groups. And the Jewish people group is a hard one. Don't be intimidated. Live your Christian life and share with them. Some of you, I know, work right alongside Jewish people. And my challenge is not only to live that righteous life like they say they want to live, but to proclaim Christ and not be compromised in your own belief system and yet speak of Christ when you speak to them. Let's pray together. Father, we know the great ancestry that is ours because of Judaism. We thank You for this great man Abraham and for Jacob and for Moses. And we thank You for the lineage that You have provided our own salvation through these servants of Yours. We have such a kinship with Judaism. And yet, Lord, we also know that there are those who even though Jews by birth or even practicing some form of a present-day Jewish religion who are far from You, they do have the oracles. They do have the law. They do have the promises. But their eyes are so blind to the ultimate truth that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. Lord, I pray for those who have opportunity to work alongside and have relationships with those who are Jewish. And I pray, Father, that You would invigorate them, encourage them, motivate them to study and to learn more about Judaism. Give them the privilege of sharing Jesus Christ and Lord, what a great thing it would be that someone, instead of rejecting that message, would say, my life is in such a way that I need to hear what you're saying.
Tell me more about Jesus. Lord, I thank You for ministries like Jews for Jesus and chosen people and friends of Israel. I pray for those ministries. Thank You that we as a church have had a part in supporting these ministries through the year, through the years. And I pray, Father, that You would continue to allow us the privilege not only of our giving, but as I said, maybe even the opportunity to have a great outreach in a place where the Jewish population is so dense. Lord, thank You for what we've learned tonight, and I pray that You would give us success in our labors with our Jewish friends. Lord, it would be a a great honor to be used by You as a Gentile to bring some of Your chosen people to You. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.